his sure-handed technique crafted over that long arc of work. When you see a film with freeze frames, with quick explosive edits, thank you, Thelma Schoonmacher, with text on the screen describing action, when the soundtrack trumpets the stones, or Jerry Vale to comment or move along the action, you know you're in a theater with a Scorsese film. This is those wonderful people out there in the dark. I'm David Jansen. Episode 30, Martin Scorsese. In the glorious days of the 70s and early 80s in the U.S., there was a birth of auteurs and a move towards independent films and away from huge legacy studio systems. Films that wouldn't have been made under the old systems were being produced. Breaking Away, A Woman Under the Influence, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Badlands, The Godfather, Days of Heaven, American Graffiti, and The Last Picture Show. There suddenly seemed to be a new set of directors, schooled from the vibe growing out of the 60s, often nurtured by serving with and for Roger Corman, producer and director of inventive, inexpensive, and quickly constructed films. Working with Corman brought a grounding in pursuing ideas the majors would never chance, working on shoestring budgets, and coming up with films that spoke to a new generation or spoke differently to previous generations. Just a few of the names associated with this movement, captured controversially by author Peter Biskin in his book Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, were Peter Bogdanovich, Francis Ford Coppola, Brian De Palma, Steven Spielberg, and George Lucas. All have made film that is memorialized as some of the finest or most groundbreaking in history, All have had not only success, but their share of misses, as one must when aiming high. But joining them and others in their auteur cohort is a producer, and especially director who, I believe, has changed American and world cinema. A writer, director, producer, actor, conservator of film, a film historian. A man whose background and family bent him, luckily for us, in the direction of the dreams of cinema and a director who has had to pull himself up repeatedly to make important films, who's gone from critical and monetary successes to works that were underappreciated in their time or missed their audience completely. Martin Scorsese. I love his ethic, always pushing into new territory, but with a reverence and an understanding for the past, for where he's come from, but also the tracings from where film has come. Never satisfied, at times almost broken and stalled, but with a questing spirit and the desire, the generous impulse to bring others along on his journey, longtime confidants and teammates, as well as putting a ladder in place for new talents to follow him. I believe he's put his mark on American film as one of the leaders from any era and will be recognized as such across the globe, where people talk about 
and relish film, they admire Scorsese. To talk about what made Scorsese, you have to look at his familial background, his attachment to New York City, and the environment of his childhood. Scorsese's family is Italian, very Italian. His mother Catherine and father Charles, some of his favorite actors to use in his films, were the children of immigrants, both families originating from the area of Palermo, Sicily. Catherine and Charles worked in the Garment District in New York and were both amateur actors. Scorsese was born in Queens, but the family soon moved to Little Italy in Manhattan. Marty had asthma as a child and was unable, because of his constitution, to play sports, as so many did in his neighborhood, but was also limited in playing with other children. He spent time instead in movie theaters, watching American and world cinema, cinema of any form that allowed him to think about what was on the screen and how it had gotten there. He became an amateur scholar of the film world, enjoying and delving into epics, crime films, but also becoming familiar with French New Wave and, more relevant to his Sicilian roots, Italian neorealism, such as De Sica's Bicycle Thieves and Rossellini's Paisan. He avidly absorbed American, Italian, Indian, Scandinavian, and French cinema, whatever he could find, wherever it was to be found. Scorsese grew up Catholic and attended an all-boys Catholic school, Cardinal Hayes High, in the Bronx. At first, he envisioned joining the priesthood, but left seminary school after a year. Instead, he went to NYU to take a bachelor's in English and later a master's from NYU's School of Education. He was inspired in college by the film classics of Professor Haig Mnugin. While still at NYU, Scorsese made a number of short films, including What's a Nice Girl Like You Doing in a Place Like This? and The Big Shave, a subversive look at America's involvement in the Vietnam War. He bootstrapped up his first full-length feature soon after, originally entitled I Call First, but later renamed Who's That Knocking at My Door? The latter was not only Scorsese's full-length debut, but also the acting debut of his schoolmate and ongoing compatriot, Harvey Keitel. Mnugin helped with $5,000 in seed money and worked with others to help finance the remainder of the low budget. The story had elements that would become recognizable in Scorsese's work. Italian men hanging together in New York City, Catholic guilt, Madonna-like women, the possibility of redemption, and occasionally the frustration of redemption. Beginning a long tradition, Catherine Scorsese and Marty himself had small roles. The editing was accomplished by one Thelma Schoonmacher. The film premiered at the Chicago International Film Festival and was praised on first viewing by Roger Ebert. A lot of columns in Scorsese's career had been laid. After this initial large-scale effort, Scorsese hit critical points of inflection. He met a young Robert De Niro, who would become a forever friend and muse. He was advised by independent filmmaker John Cassavetes to keep uppermost in his mind the need to make films Scorsese, not the studios, thought was important. Scorsese also shot Boxcar Bertha for Roger Corman. Corman showed Scorsese the possibilities of story and technique triumphing over a small budget and short time frame. All this contributed to Scorsese attempting what became a breakout film, Mean Streets. Amplifying the structure of Knocking at My Door, the second of a trio of foundational films, 
he employed both Keitel and De Niro to tell a tale of the interdependence of young, macho Italian-American males in New York City, with rapid cuts, guilt, Catholicism, organized crime, and for the time, an unusual amount of bloodshed thrown into the mix. Noted critic Pauline Kael praised the film on release at the New York Film Festival, and it was a turning point, not only for Scorsese, but De Niro, the latter winning the Best Supporting Actor Awards from the New York Film Critics Circle and the National Society of Film Critics. Mean Streets has been selected for the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. The Scorsese legacy was underway. The notices for Mean Streets fueled Scorsese's ability to get financing and distribution by Columbia Pictures for his next and biggest venture to date, Taxi Driver. Again, using De Niro and Keitel to anchor a marvelous cast, including Jodie Foster as an underage prostitute, Scorsese produced a work that offered a nightmarish view of an almost bankrupt New York City during the mid-70s. De Niro's Vietnam vet character, Travis Bickle, drives his hack on streets populated by small-time crooks, pimps, hookers, street people, trash, all suffused in a fluorescent haze by cinematographer Michael Chapman. Bickle presages by 50 years the frustrated, dead-end, gun-strapped loners of our present times, his quiet rage and mania driving a terrible confrontation with Keitel's pimp, all in service of an imagined connection to Foster's character. The film was also notable for Scorsese's small role as one of Bickle's fares, for the work of Sybil Shepherd, and for the twist of fate that Scorsese would employ a number of times down the years, of violent or malevolent action being mischaracterized as an act of good or benevolence. Also critical was Scorsese's first partnership with writer Paul Schrader. From the measly $1.9 million budget, with 200000 allocated for all the performers, Scorsese and company have produced a modern masterpiece, completing his trio of New York loner guy films of Knocking at My Door and Main Streets. Roger Ebert labeled it as one of the best American films ever. It was put on innumerable best lists of film, received the Palme d'Or at Cannes, and garnered four Academy nominations, including for De Niro and Foster. With great talent comes great responsibility. Thus began Scorsese's cycle of films that alternately roared to success and then failed in the eyes of the public, all while he was trying to remain true to himself. The explosion of Taxi Driver allowed Scorsese to make an ode to his hometown of New York City, as well as explore his love of music in his next venture, New York, New York. Taking De Niro at his hottest and adding Liza Minnelli as star-crossed musician lovers, Scorsese poured everything into making a beautiful film and hymn to popular music of the 40s and 50s. It was a treat to the eyes and ears, but the two leads had poor chemistry, and the public didn't know what to make of Scorsese's try for a non-New York City neighborhood moody loner film. It sank. The derision for the love note to his city left the director in a gathering depression, worsened by a growing cocaine addiction. As the 70s closed, he was mentally and physically in dangerous shape. De Niro talked him straight, cajoling him by promising to make a film together if he kicked his addiction. In 1980, a renewed Scorsese embarked on what should have been an even riskier project than New York, Raging Bull. The story of middleweight boxing champion in the Bronx Bull, 
Jake LaMotta. While he was back on the familiar ground of the scenes of neighborhood New York City and capturing a moody, loner personality, which is giving LaMotta all too much credit, he was a violent misanthrope. The story was hard to take, not at all the heroic line that Americans were used to in sports films. But the writing team of Schrader and key contributions from De Niro and Scorsese produced a compelling tale. De Niro was anxious to play LaMotta, and he and Scorsese discovered a talent in Joe Pesci to play the critical role of LaMotta's brother. Chapman was again the cinematographer to capture the incredible boxing footage, and Thelma Schoonmacher joined in the first of many editing assignments with her former schoolmate. Taking an unlikely protagonist like Amata in a subject in which Scorsese had no background nor interest, and producing the greatest sports film in American history, as well as one of the world's most fascinating portraits of an unlikable character, was a triumph. Raging Bull became one of Scorsese's most acclaimed films, winning the Oscar for De Niro and Schoonmacher, a total of eight Academy nominations, voted the best of the decade of the 80s on many film lists. His non-interest in boxing and a difficult-to-understand character had resulted in a film that made the ugly sport of boxing lyrical and beautiful, while revealing the depths of a character as complex as Lamada's. It was a tour de force. And Scorsese left a moving tribute and promise to his friend and mentor, Haig Mnugian, in the credits. Scorsese spent the rest of the decade in a set of varied projects, a film reminiscent of his earlier, smaller works, After Hours, for which he won the Best Director Award at Cannes, a big studio venture with Disney's Touchstone Pictures, The Color of Money, which reprised Paul Newman's character from The Hustler and paired him with young Tom Cruise, for which Newman finally won the Oscar. Yes, I know. This led him through the end of the decade and into a project of which he had been working through development hell to land, 1988's The Last Temptation of Christ. Paramount Pictures had been set to distribute this non-gospel approach to Jesus' life and struggles, based on the 1955 book of the same title. When Paramount crumbled in the face of fundamentalist objections to a work that was proclaimed not to be an interpretation of the Gospels, in stepped Universal Studios. Scorsese made the film with Willem Dafoe as Jesus, Keitel as Judas, with a New York accent, and a stroke of genius, Harry Dean Stanton as a Quixotic Paul. Unlike the biblical epics of Scorsese's youth in New York City theaters, the film showed Jesus wrestling deeply with his thoughts, his questioning of God's plan, and his final realizations in suffering. It was, again, a masterwork, for which he was assailed, reviled, and boycotted. Scorsese had developed his first film to look deeply at his thoughts and questions about belief and religion, only to be stoned by the religious-industrial complex. The film is now admired as a classic, but most people were happy and gratified to wait for a snuff-film version of Jesus' last, The Passion of the Christ. Don't get me started. Scorsese had delivered his vision of a project he'd contemplated since childhood. As it said in the film, it is accomplished. But his strength held, and as the 90s began, Scorsese entered a golden age. The Scorsese acting and production team in 1990 put together the greatest American gangster film ever, Goodfellas. Another effort with De Niro, 
Pesci, and Schoonmacher, with a tremendous cast of Scorsese regulars, including Catherine and Charlie, it became Scorsese's best-known film, and perhaps his best. Derived from the Nicholas Pileggi book Wise Guy, it told an ever-tightening story of mob recruitment, success in crime, the high life of the dark side of society, with a devolution into drug dealing and addiction. Increasingly in his films, Scorsese developed his love of music into more than a key element of the story, aided by musician Robbie Robertson. The Goodfellas soundtrack is amazing and adds significantly to the action on the screen. Schoonmacher's editing was a marvel of fast cuts, freeze frames, and jumps that increased the pace as the story nearly careened out of control. The film made a star of Pesci, who won the Best Supporting Oscar, and resulted in six total Academy nominations and a presence on multiple best-of lists down the years. Scorsese showed a master's control of story and visuals that sped by and were burned into popular memory. What a Scorsese film looked and sounded like was burnt in like a brand as well. He went on to a highly lucrative remake of Cape Fear, using actors from the original 60s iteration in smaller roles, along with De Niro, The Age of Innocence, A Disappointment at the Box Office, about the straighted society of 19th century New York City, though it paired Scorsese with Daniel Day-Lewis. Then, a return to the gang genre, which American audiences love to shove him into, with another Pileggi book-based film, Casino. Again, employing De Niro and Pesci, this time in the wild west of the growth of the casino industry in Vegas. The film went on to good success and was an enjoyable watch, but not at the level of Goodfellas, to which it was inevitably compared. He returned to wrestling with religious thought and thereby confusing his supposed loyal audience with the film Kundun, the early life story of the current Dalai Lama and his banishment from Tibet. A quiet introspective film, Scorsese tried to show the inner life and thought of the religious leader through a soundtrack by artist Philip Glass and cinematography that was otherworldly and hallucinatory. The public and critics found it hard to grasp a through storyline. Disney, as Touchstone Pictures, was craven in backing down before the Chinese Communist Party and their displeasure with the aspects of the story that dealt with their pillage of Tibet. Sensing the loss of some dollars, head of Disney Michael Eisner had the film buried with a perfunctory release and almost no subsequent promotion. He went on to say, The bad news was the film was made. The good news is that nobody watched it. A real profile on courage. Probably added 0.1% to Disney's bottom line at year-end to bury this work. But kept ties with the CCP open. Billions of people, you know? A new century brought a new muse to Scorsese, as he worked with Day-Lewis on the film Gangs of New York, along with a promising newcomer, Leonardo DiCaprio. It was a return to the complicated history of his hometown, with Day-Lewis and DiCaprio jousting as members of gangs of newly immigrated Catholics and settled Protestants, with no-nothings, look it up, thrown in during the offing of the Civil War. Scorsese himself was once again jousting with the growth of his city, the violence found in American society, and our tendency to draw into cultural enclaves and try at all costs to keep others out, despite what it says on the Statue of Liberty. Both the lead actors were electric, 
but the film was overlong and complex, a wonderful delight to sit and dissect on DVD, but difficult for a large audience to get behind. It also marked, as a symbol of its earlier successes, a huge $100 million budget. This would become a trend. By this point in his career, Scorsese had been nominated as Best Director by the Academy four times and been aced out each time, even by such first-timers as Robert Redford and Kevin Costner. In The Aviator, he pulled out all the stops to make a Hollywood biopic that went beyond the gloss usually associated with the genre. Interpreting the difficult character of billionaire Howard Hughes in the person of DiCaprio, he created a world that spanned from the 20s to the 40s and captured filmmaking, big business, money, technology, and aviation. It was a beauty to see. All for naught. If you only care about the Best Director Oscar, which I'm sure is an exaggeration. What was creeping into his films was a new ethic, how the insinuation of power and the power of money came onto the American scene and changed societal balance. Scorsese then chose to make a remake of a Hong Kong-based police procedural, Infernal Affairs, as a film called The Departed, changing the location of Boston and transplanting the Irish mob in a character based on crime boss Whitey Bulger. DiCaprio was back, but the film was bolstered by Jack Nicholson, not overacting tremendously, as well as the cast including Mark Wahlberg and Martin Sheen. It was terrific, a tad preachy, but moved well and was acclaimed by critics and moviegoers alike, as we shall see. It became Scorsese's highest-grossing film to that date. Never static in one genre, Scorsese spent the rest of the 2000s moving among interesting and challenging film projects. He directed Shutter Island with DiCaprio, an exploration of reality and psychological stability. Well-received, it became Scorsese's highest-grossing film. He moved to a 3D adventure film, Hugo, which was a beautiful delight to see, and a salute to film pioneer Georges Millet and the exploration of childhood. Hugo garnered many award nominations and was well-reviewed as a daring step in Scorsese's offerings. The Wolf of Wall Street was a full-on blast at the go-go era of finance and excess, with DiCaprio backed by Margot Robbie and Jonah Hill. Scorsese was at his most contemplative and thoughtful in 2016's Silence, an examination of faith in the face of social and cultural barriers. Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver are powerful as Jesuit priests in Japan working to bring Christianity to a country in which it is violently opposed, and converts must hide away their faith. Scorsese was impressed especially with Driver's work and commended him as one of the finest young actors with whom he'd recently worked. Scorsese had pushed for more than 20 years to bring silence to the screen, and it didn't make back its budget. Not even close. It's part of Scorsese's ongoing quest to understand questions of faith and bring out their consequences on screen, even if he must leave his audience behind. He ended the decade with an emotional and revelatory project, another in a list of films that he'd rescued from development hell because he had to see them on screen. The Irishman had been brought to Scorsese by De Niro from the book I Heard You Paint Houses, a tale of Irish mobster Frank Sheeran, a zealot-like character who seemed to have been part of any mob-related activity in the latter half of the 20th century. 
Among those actions, he claimed to have assassinated his friend and mentor, Teamster boss Jimmy Hoffa, just the crime of the century as it was called then. Through expensive de-aging technology, Scorsese was able to bring about a 50-year story arc with De Niro, Pesci, and Al Pacino playing the leads. It was something of Goodfellas brought up to date, but it was more. The Irishman was a melancholy contemplation of age and regret. Long, languid, and violent, but filled with evocative feeling and the beauty of the three powerful actors bringing a morality tale to the screen. It was a work of love and money, incredibly expensive due to the technology and talent. Hey, Scorsese slipped in Harvey Keitel in a small role. It was bankrolled by streaming money from Netflix for a budget likely of more than $250 million. It's a worthy companion to Goodfellas and ranks in Scorsese's top three films along with Raging Bull. High hopes for the Academy Awards. The day after the ceremonies, Scorsese posted a picture of himself holding his dog and sporting a very unhappy frown. I'm with you, Mr. Scorsese. I'm with you. He turned 80 recently, but Scorsese is as busy and vibrant as ever. Already shot and soon for release via more sweet, sweet streaming money, this time from Apple+. Plus is the eagerly awaited Killers of the Flower Moon, based on the book by David Gran. With DiCaprio and De Niro leading the cast, including Brendan Fraser and John Lithgow, it traces murders of the Osage tribe of indigenous people in 1920s Oklahoma in order to take over their valuable oil leases. Once again, a budget over $200 million. Recently, he announced he'd be filming a treatment of another grand book, The Wager, again funded by Apple Studios and starring DiCaprio. I've been going on about his film catalog, but creatively he's done so much more. While a world standout in fictional or biographical film, he's also an accomplished documentarian, especially in his beloved field of music. Even as a young director, he produced somewhat of a self-portrait, Italian-American, which employed Catherine and Charlie to tell the story of a typical Italian family in New York City, with Scorsese as a behind-the-camera questioner. His association with Robbie Robertson began with his work on his film of the last concert of the band, of which Robertson was a member, The Last Waltz. Well regarded as a concert film, the latter was made even as Scorsese was fighting out of his cocaine addiction. He directed a salute and love letter to Italian film in the documentary My Voyage to Italy, repaying those hours of his youth in watching Italian neorealism. He followed this by heading up an incredible seven parts set on the original American music, the blues, with each part a chapter on the multi-generational and winding story of the music, with contributions from multiple American directors. 
No Direction Home is an in-depth look at American mainstay and musical chameleon Bob Dylan's career, from his early folk roots to his transformation through electrification of his sound. This was later paired with Netflix's release of Rolling Thunder Review, a documentary on Dylan's 1975 tour of America and America's mindset of the time. Shine a Light followed the 2006 performances of the Rolling Stones in New York City with historical footage for depth. The project was special to Scorsese due to his admiration for the group and his use of their music in almost all of his films with a modern setting. Charlie Watts, legendary and now sadly departed Stones drummer, said, It's all in the edits and cuts. That's a movie maker rather than a guy just shooting a band on stage. It's a document. Scorsese also penned a loving and in-depth look at former Beatle George Harrison and his music and philosophy in George Harrison, Living in the Material World. He has current plans afoot to film a biopic about the Grateful Dead for Apple Studios. With this amount of work and output, Scorsese might be forgiven for sticking to his own knitting and concentrating on his stream of films down the years. But, hearkening and often in memory of his mentors and previous hands-up, he's a generous and determined leader for new artists, new properties, with a sharp focus on maintenance and appreciation of the history of cinema. Scorsese has mentored and been an EP for such directors as Vim Vendors, Stephen Frears, Spike Lee, and Joanna Hogg. He formed Defina Kappa Productions, later to become Sekelia Productions, in order to support and fund new artists and ventures in film and television. The company has partnered variously with Universal, Disney, Paramount, and Apple. He's produced such films for young directors as Lime Life, You Can Count on Me, and The Young Victoria. Scorsese has also been executive producer and directed initial episodes of Boardwalk Empire and Vinyl. His interest in the history of film and concern for the preservation of older films is fueled through his nonprofit, the Film Foundation, which has financed and overseen the restoration of over 800 films from across the globe. The group is behind an excellent and educational monthly showing and discussion of newly preserved films. Look them up on social media. The work has been extended by the World Cinema Project, a Scorsese organization specifically to preserve and educate on films from geographies less financially able to care for their cinematic heritage. This has resulted in a collaboration with the Very Fine Criterion Collection and the Criterion Channel to have these films more widely available. The Film Foundation has partnered with UNESCO to form the African Film Heritage Project, leveraging the Foundation's resources to focus on classic African film preservation and displaying the works at the Pan-African Film Festival. Scorsese is not only a director with supreme control of story, process, technique, he's also an actor's director. A wonderful partner to the actors under his care, Scorsese has lifted many to career-defining performances and awards. Too numerous to mention all, but just focusing on the Motion Picture Academy, actors who have achieved an Oscar under his direction include De Niro, Pesci, Paul Newman, Ellen Burstyn, and Kate Blanchett. And the nominees, just a few, Pacino, Daniel Day-Lewis, DiCaprio, Sharon Stone, Mark Wahlberg, Jonah Hill, Jodie Foster, and Winona Ryder. Plus, the guy is a pretty good actor himself. He appears often in small roles in his own films, 
but also appeared for Robert Redford, not holding a grudge about losing the director Oscar for Raging Bull to Redford's Ordinary People. Harumph. His CEO of the quack medicine company producing Geritol in Redford's quiz show was a marvel of confidence, business acumen, and smirk. Just great. He appeared, much to Kurosawa's delight, as Vincent van Gogh in Akira Kurosawa's film Dreams. How do you rate a man? I don't think that any one word can sum up a man's life, to use an homage to Citizen Kane. Scorsese has been recognized worldwide for his impact on cinema. The most nominated living director by the Motion Picture Academy, with nine nominations to date. The winner of a Grammy and an Emmy. The Palme d'Or from Cannes. The Silver Lion from the Venice Film Festival. A Pulitzer Prize. Best Director at the BAFTA Awards. Best Director from the Golden Globes and the Directors Guild of America. AFI Lifetime Achievement Award the Kennedy Center Honors, the French Legion of Honor. But why does he mean so much to lovers of film? Why is his name in any conversation about the giants of cinema? Now, no one's asked me. I'll pick up the harness and talk about what he means to my mind. I'm struck by the breadth and depth of his work. Multiple films that are among the best ever shot and presented, regardless of era. His sure-handed technique crafted over that long arc of work. When you see a film with freeze frames, with quick explosive edits, thank you, Thelma Schoonmacher, with text on the screen describing action, when the soundtrack trumpets the stones, or Jerry Vale, to comment or move along the action, you know you're in a theater with a Scorsese film. But more than the technique is the story. Scorsese has perfected a meld of story and production that makes his films stand out all the more from common film fare. And the stories abound, dealing with guilt, with Catholic guilt, with redemption, or the slipping away of redemption. New York stories, violence shot through society, the corrosive effects of power, the corrosion of loneliness, of prejudice, of clannishness. Though Scorsese is marked by these themes and production values, it's never repetitive. For me, The Irishman was a revelation. Not geriatric goodfellas, but pondering the effects of violence over years, the regrets of age, the loss of family to protect your family, an incredible mining of years of work that remains fresh and new. Scorsese is as well-loved for his loyalty and fostering of talent. Not one to pull up the ladder of success once climbed, He's brought along an army of trusted friends and compatriots to work with him over and over again, friends in his life's work. Actors such as De Niro, Pesci, Keitel, and DiCaprio have trusted him. Wonderful craftspeople such as repeated Oscar winner Schoonmacher, Schrader, Robertson, cinematographers Michael Ballhaus, Michael Chapman, and Rodrigo Prieto have stood by and worked magic with him. He's offered financing and advice to numerous young filmmakers, filmmakers who might have been the young Marty Scorsese years ago, thus never turning his back on the encouragement and mentorship shown him by individuals like Haig Mnugian. He's wrestled himself on his faith two falls out of three down the years. He still considers himself a Catholic, and his work on religion and faith has been among his most controversial, 
but also his most inspired and fervent. As in Last Temptation, he's had to wrestle with his own demons as well, fighting off depression and addiction, in part thanks to De Niro. But in the end, realizing the wisdom offered by John Cassavetes, make films that mean something to you, not films for which you're indebted to the studio. Scorsese has had to walk a wire to gain the reputation he enjoys, as well as the financing. But to me, one of the greatest hallmarks of his character is his drive and determination to make films that mean something to him, even at the risk of losing his audience, even at the risk of losing support to make the next film. His powerful visions were always in front of him, and he never shied away from the courage it took to follow them. Scorsese always knew where those visions came from, from the afternoons spent in New York City theaters, absorbing cinema wherever he could find it, from taking lessons on how to place your visions on the screen, the magical process to spread your thoughts across the world. His love of film has been repaid many times by his work to keep the world's legacy of cinema from drifting away, from becoming a desperate heap of nitrate and old film. He has again used the fruit of his efforts to ensure that classics of film aren't lost to the world. For the film lover, there are fewer words sadder than a lost film. Scorsese has invested time, money, and effort into rescuing and educating the world on films that might have suffered that fate. It's your friends who best sum up their love for you and where you stand in their hearts. Nine Academy nominations for Best Director. At last, in 2006, after misses for Raging Bull, for Goodfellas, for The Aviator, his friends and collaborators, Lucas, Spielberg, and Coppola, stood on the stage at the Academy Awards and announced that the best director for 2006 was Martin Scorsese for The Departed. Of course, he made a joke, asking them to check the envelope and result. What everyone knew was, at last, recognized. He was the best director. But to me, even more moving, and play the YouTube of that 2006 ceremony, it's amazing, was at a ceremony years later. Moving because it reflected the main currents of Scorsese's life so well. At the Academy presentations in 2020, South Korean Bong Joon-ho won Best Director for his film, Parasite. He said, When I was young and studying cinema, there was a saying that I carved deep into my heart, which is, the most personal is the most creative. He then noted that the thought had come from Martin Scorsese. The Academy audience gave Scorsese a standing ovation. Long may you reign, sir. I look forward to your next films, and I savor your history. Thank you from a once young man, now an old man, who haunted cinemas as well. You can find us on the web and social media. We're at those wonderful people on Instagram and at Films in the Dark on Twitter. Our website is thosewonderfulpeople.com, where we post pod episode transcripts, and you can leave your questions and comments. Our music is by Martin Shellikens, Alex Zavesa, and Alex Chernick. I'm David Jansen. Talk with you soon. And as always, I'll leave the last word to Mr. Scorsese. What are the essentials to you? What makes cinema? I think what makes cinema to me, uh, 
I think ultimately it's something that for some reason stays with you uh, so that a few years later you could watch it again or 10 years later you watch it again and it's different. In other words, there's more to learn Mm -hmm. about yourself or about life. Mm -hmm. 